All right, how's everybody doing? Great. Can you smile? Yeah. Um, okay, we're going to dive in tonight. We've got, we've got a lot to cover. Um, so if you have your scriptures, I want to encourage you to, to open to 2 Samuel 7. We're going to be camping out there tonight and bouncing around to several other places as well. Tonight is our final session of our winter term. Can you believe it? We've got one more session to go um, in the spring that we'll kick off, as Tammy said, on March the 8th. But I just want to start as you're turning in your scriptures to 2 Samuel 7 by commending you um, for being here. I know on Wednesday evenings after a, a full day and halfway through the week, there's a lot of uh, reasons to not be here. And thank you for making it a priority, and I hope it's been um, a blessing to you. Um, what we're talking about tonight is the Davidic kings. And so we'll get a little bit further into that. Um, but I want to uh, just give my bottom line right up front uh, that God preserves his covenant through the line of King David and draws a line from King Jesus to us. And I'll put that on the screen um, so you can write it down. Um, but I just want to say it up front um, that we'll center all of our teaching tonight around this. God preserves his covenant through the line of King David and draws a line from King Jesus to us. And I want to give a disclaimer um, that I know every one of our teachers, the, my, my partners that have been up here, um, you know, feel and, and they're teaching as we stand here. This is a lot of material. Um, so as you're studying every week, I know that um, it's a lot to take in. And of course, we won't walk through every story and every Davidic king tonight. There's 22 of them. Um, but they're all important and they're all worth our time. And so I want to encourage you to go further in your study. Um, and I have a few questions tonight, discussion uh, points for you to go a little bit further around your table as well and talk a little bit about what stuck out to you um, this week. But I want us to begin uh, back on a familiar road that we began on, uh, if you can remember, back to September uh, when we started New City Academy. Uh, we started on a road. Uh, there's some roads that we can drive in our sleep, right? If you take me to McKee Road and Tilly Morris, uh, right on the Union County line, I could close my eyes and drive that road, um, even though so much has changed. When I was growing up, Providence Road and Ballantine Commons, there was no Ballantine uh, Commons, uh, was a clicking yellow light uh, there at that intersection. But if you put me back on that road right now, I could, I could probably get to my house um, blindfolded. I wonder if you could think about the road that you grew up on or the place you grew up on and, and think about the road that led to your front door. Um, I think in life, there's a lot of roads that we need to return to. There's some that we need to leave behind. Um, but there's some roads we need to keep coming back to over and over and over again. And I want to take us back to a familiar road that we started our journey in New City Academy with. Because to me, it's a, it's a foundational place for us to continue to go back to over and over and over again. It's a seven-mile road. And it runs from Jerusalem to a little village called Emmaus. And it's found in Luke chapter 24. And I want to read verses 13 through 34. And here's what I want to invite you into. Um, if you're like me, um, I have a couple of small group members in here. I have a men's group that meets at 6.30 on Wednesday morning. Um, and then I was just telling Tom, 12 hours later, here we are. Um, and so my head is full already this week. And um, I'm sure for you, there's a lot of stressors and things that you're thinking about, um, problems to solve, challenges, burdens. And I just want to invite each of you um, over the next hour and a half, two hours, um, into a space where you can leave some of those behind and engage with the living and true God who sees you, who knows you, who wants to communion with you, um, and wants to speak to you. And so this may seem a little whatever for you, but I want to invite you to close your eyes and imagine a familiar road. Uh, maybe it's a road that you travel every day to work or um, back to your hometown or um, just someplace that that makes you smile tonight as you think about it and all the memories of where that road has led you. And let's, let's come on this little uh, seven-mile dusty road from uh, Jerusalem to Emmaus and, and hear God's word tonight. This is Luke 24, 13 through 34. Again, if you feel comfortable, close your eyes and just, just let me read the word of God to you tonight as we begin. That same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that happened. And as they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. 
but God kept them from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you talking about? They stopped short, sadness written across their faces. One of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there the last few days. Hilarious. Jesus says, um, God has a sense of humor, what things? What are you talking about? The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth. He was a prophet, and he did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priest and the other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. Well, I want you to hear these words. We had hoped he was the Messiah. We had hoped that he was the one that would come to rescue us. This all happened three days ago. Then some women from our group who were his followers were at his tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. So this is on Easter. They said his body was missing, and they had seen angels who told them Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran out to see for themselves, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus, listen to this, Luke 24, 27. Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. By this time, they were nearing Emmaus and the end of their journey. Jesus acted as if he was going on, but they begged him, stay with us since it's getting late. So we went home with them. And they sat down to eat. He took the bread and he blessed it and then he broke it and he gave it to them. Suddenly their eyes were opened. They recognized him. And at that moment, he was gone. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. They found the 11 disciples and the others who had gathered with them who said, the Lord has really risen. All right, let's come back to the room. So one of the things that, that I observe about our road here, our seven-mile road, is that it's a two-way street, right? We find them on their way back to Emmaus, heartbroken and disappointed because they don't believe that Jesus was the one that they had hoped for, the one that would rescue them, secure their salvation. Jesus explains the scriptures. He goes to what? What, is, what does uh, the scripture say here about what Jesus explains? What's the colloquialism there? It's in uh, verse 27. The writings of Moses and all the prophets which was a little phrase, just to say, if you want to make a little note, that was a little phrase that Hebrews would use to talk about all the Old Testament. So basically what uh, Luke is describing to us here in this moment is that Jesus takes all the Hebrew Testament and begins to explain how all of it points to him. And he uses that to open their eyes, not only that, but of course, breaking the bread with them, which reminds them of communion and, the, and, the, and, and even what they had heard about in the upper room and he reveals himself to them. But it doesn't stop there. They turn right back around, says they weren't even home an hour, and they go back to Jerusalem, which was a very dangerous place in that moment um, to be a follower of Jesus. And they go back to the disciples, and what do they do? They tell them Jesus is alive, and they begin to explain what they've experienced. And the word I would use is, these disciples, these two are walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus on the, our road and return. They begin to disciple the disciples. They go and tell their story. 
And to me, this is a foundational moment um, in the scriptures, but also for us to understand as we think about New City Academy. Because our journey um, to Jesus is so significant in understanding him and uh, him making himself known to us, revealing himself to us through the scriptures and through um, you know, the community of God and the, and the miraculous. But our journey doesn't stop there, and it doesn't stop here for our friends. They don't sit down at Emmaus and go, man, that's cool that Jesus appeared to us, and uh, now we know he's really alive. They, no, they turn right back around and, and go right back the seven miles to go and tell other people. And I just wanted to highlight that again. I want us to keep coming back to this because to me, this is the journey of discipleship um, where we, we find Jesus, um, where he makes himself known to us over and over and over again. Um, our hearts burn within us as the scriptures are explained to us um, and our eyes are open to see Jesus for who he really is, but it doesn't stop there. Um, then we go and we help other people to find Jesus and to follow him. And it's disciples making disciples, which is the heartbeat of our church. That's what we want the heartbeat of our church to be. Another way to say it is dis- equipping disciple makers, people who will go and make disciples. You know, there's an old um, adage that you're not really a disciple in the truest sense, like the fullest sense, the, the complete sense, until you're discipling someone else, um, until you're sharing your story and your journey about Jesus with someone else. So the road to Emmaus, I love, because it's a two-way street back and forth, um, as they're experiencing God. And I hope that that's been the case for you, not only on Wednesday nights, but in your other groups and Sunday mornings, other experiences that you're having with Jesus. Um, but it doesn't stop there. You're journeying back and telling other people what you've experienced, and you're sharing that with them. Can you imagine the joy that they had in going back and telling the disciples, uh, we've seen Jesus. He sat with us. We 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 dined with him. He explained the Bible, the scriptures to us. He all the things we grew up uh, learning, he, um, we, we, we finally understand it was all pointing us to Jesus. He explained the scriptures to us, which you know, we've been talking about together in our acronym. So I want to bring us back to that really quickly, uh, Casket Empty. And I'm just going to call out the letter, and I just want somebody to give me the word that it stands for as we, as we close this session. Let's just keep coming back to our acronym that, that kind of explains and walks us through every narrative of the scripture. So what's the C stand for? All right, awesome. A. Awesome. S. Good. K. Okay, we're going to be in Kings tonight. E. Good. T. Okay, and we'll get to um, exile and temple in our next session. All right, let's go to the New Testament. E. Expectation, right? Okay. Um, P. No, M. (laughs) Messiah. All right, P. Pentecost. Okay, T, teachings, and why? All right, good. Let's just keep coming back to that over and over and over again. This is an amazing acronym that when you're sitting with someone, right, and you're explaining the scriptures to them as they've been explained to you and as you're learning um, to help them have little, um, this is my, you know, verbiage for it. It's like little coat hangers that they can understand the scriptures. So many people, when you hand them a Bible, it's so overwhelming to look at 66 books of the Bible and just go, I, I mean, where do I start? Like, what, what, do, what do I do? And then by the time I hit Leviticus, I'm off the rails. I don't understand what is happening here as we talk about different fabrics and, you know, what I can wear and not wear and all these different things. It's very hard to understand. Um, so we have to have a big picture, right? We have to have something that helps us to explain the scriptures and share with people the big picture of the scriptures, which I would imagine on that road to Emmaus is what Jesus does. As he talks about the law, um, uh, the, uh, the law of Moses and the prophets, in a big picture way, he's explaining to them how all these narratives are pointing back to him and that he's the fulfillment you know, of all those. Um, I married a Midwesterner who's on the, on the front row here. I never met some of you uh, know uh, our story of meeting in biology and, and school. Um, Neither of us were biology, math people, so um, we were very interested in each other, but not that. Um, and I never met anyone from South Dakota, so it was a fascination to me um, to meet someone um, from that far away. I'd never been west of the Mississippi um, at that point in my life. And so I've just learned a lot about um, different um, ways that families function. I'm sure you have too with um, you know, people in your life, loved ones, and learning their family systems. One of the things for us, like I'd never done... No, no judgment zone in here tonight, okay? I had never done a jigsaw puzzle in my life 
just, I spent my childhood in a, like, in a creek, on a bike, on a field. Um, I never did puzzles. I wasn't inside. I didn't, that, that just wasn't. My wife, who grew up in South Dakota, spent eight months out of the year inside. And so learned how to, you know, ride their bike in the basement and um, all the things. And so jigsaw puzzles um, were a part of that, too. So every now and then, Jen will pull out a, a puzzle, and um, I think we have one maybe holiday season we have one out. I don't touch them, um, just not good at them. Those of you who know me, I'm a big picture person. I don't, I don't enjoy the intricacies. It gets me in trouble at times, um, but I appreciate the skill if you're a jigsaw puzzle person. Um, but the reason why I'm talking about this is because the Bible for a lot of people is a complex jigsaw puzzle, and you actually have some pieces on your table. And to kind of cement this point, I'd love for you to take the pieces that you have on the table and um, place them together as best you can um, and form you know, what you would imagine is the picture of your puzzle. So confession, they don't all go together perfectly, but if you can put them together as best you can, and then as a, as a group, just try to discern at least a part of the picture together. And I'm gonna set a timer for, for about three minutes here, guys. All right, guys, I'm going I'm to call it here. I know, I know some of you are still working, and you can stay after tonight and keep working <laughs> if you want to. All right, let me, um, let me just ask a couple of questions and just, um, just kind of uh, project if you want to answer. What, what, was, what was challenging about this? Okay, so I heard uh, wrong information. I heard everything. Wrong information. Paul? No detail. Yeah, I mean, what are the instructions? What are the details? What, what, no big picture to look at. Okay, what else? Multiple things, different images. Anything else? Didn't have all the pieces, missing pieces. Okay, so this is probably a little redundant, but what would have helped your table? A picture of the puzzle, a big picture. All the pieces, knowing that the pieces were on the table. Instructions, having some instructions, where to start. Yeah, a lot, okay, guys, say, a lot of, the way you f- are feeling and what you're saying is, is, is the way a lot of people feel when they read the Bible and when they come to the scriptures. And moreover, even when they interact and try to understand Christianity and faith. Uh, how does it all fit together? I have questions. Where's the instruction book? When do, when's the part when my life starts to get better? Um, when everything changes for me, you know, what, what, uh, th- these are the things that people wrestle with. You know, how do I how do I make all this fit together? I mean, doesn't the Bible say this and that? And how does it all work together? And just really quickly, you know, again, and our casket empty acronym, such a wonderful thing. And if you have, if you're taking notes, maybe you just want to write that um, down on a sheet of paper. I want to teach just a little bit further tonight um, as we jump into Davidic Kings, a way to um, further understand how the Bible fits together. And I want to give uh, total attribution to walk through the Bible and Dr. Burt Downs, um, who's done a great job with this. By the way, if you ever want to go further and just do a deep dive and geek out on stuff like this, um, biblicaltraining.org is a wonderful resource, biblicaltraining.org. Tons of free resources, seminary-level classes um, for all people. Their mission is to provide theological education to the world at no cost. And so you get great professors from Gordon Conwell, Asbury, RTS, um, Princeton, all kinds of different places, Fuller, um, and they're putting their best stuff on biblicaltraining.org. So Dr. Burt Downs teaches a, a class on an overview of the Bible that I'm actually going through right now and have learned a ton. Um, and what he talks about is that really you could understand the scriptures in terms of, again, my word, like three coat hangers in each testament. And so the, the first one would be, first thing would be foundations. So just take a guess of, because we've studied this, what would the foundations of the Old Testament be? I'm sorry, Carrie. Genesis. The Genesis for sure. The, the, the Pentateuch, the Pentateuch. Okay, so the Torah. So Pentateuch is, penta means five, tuk means book. Pentateuch, it's the five books of Moses. So when Jesus says he was teaching about the, you know, he was telling them the, the, the teachings of Moses, he's talking about the Pentateuch. He's talking about the foundations. Okay, the next coat hanger, if you will, in understanding the scriptures and how they fit together, here's our first five, uh, 39 books in the Old Testament. So our first five are foundations, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then we get to history, which we're in tonight. We're going to go a little bit further in this and Davidic uh, kings. 
But history uh, begins with Joshua and then goes all the way through the book of Esther. So think about those 12 books. And somebody make sure I'm getting my math right here. So the first five, the Pentateuch, the Torah. The next 12 are the historical books of the Old Testament, beginning with Joshua, ending with Esther. Okay, And basically, this is the story of how the people of God were living out, guess what it was, the foundations, uh, the understanding of who God is, how we're meant to be your people, how we're meant to relate to you. Uh, the history of the Old Testament is how God's people did, basically. It's the stories, and we're in it tonight as we jump into 2 Samuel. All right, so 12 books there. So what are we up to? 17 books. How many more do we have? 22. All right, so then there's 22 instructional books. Okay, so instructional books being the, the prophets and the poets. So beginning with the book of Job and all the way through the book of Malachi, the last book of the Hebrew Testament, were in instructional books. And of the 22, 17 of them are prophetic, major and minor prophets, and five of them are poetic. And so the poets are talking about the heart of God's people. So the Psalms, they're, talking, they're getting to the heart of the people of God and speaking to the condition of the heart as, as uh, the people were experiencing God in their history. And then the prophets are oftentimes speaking into crisis. They're speaking into moments in the, in the history of the people of God and, and giving correction and teaching to them. So you could, you could frame up all of the Hebrew Testament, all the Old Testament of which we're studying right now, in these three coat hangers that over, kind of, I would put these over casket, all right? So uh, foundations, um, history, and instructions. And again, 5, 12, 22 for a total of 39 books, right? And here's the interesting thing. So the instructional in the Old Testament, the prophets and the poets are not advancing the story per se. Uh, chronologically, we do get a little bit further in books like Daniel, but they're not advancing the history that far. They're amplifying history. So uh, they're magnifying, if you will. They're showing what's in the heart. They're amplifying the things that are happening in the his history of God's people as they live out the foundations of who God is and who they're meant to be in light of that. Does this make sense? Okay, now here's the interesting thing. The New Testament, the same way. What are the foundations of the, the coat hanger for the New Testament? We'll get into this you know, next year. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four foundations of the New Testament. What would be our historical work in the New Testament? Acts. Our one historical book in the New Testament would be Acts. And then how many books, how many books are in the, in the New Testament? 27. So how many uh, instructional books do we have? 22. The same as the Old Testament. So beginning with Romans all the way through Revelation, we have John and James and Peter uh, and Jude and Paul and an unknown with Hebrews. Um, telling us the instructions about how the people of God are doing, basically giving correction, giving encouragement, helping them in their, their first century history um, to be living out the foundations of the Gospels. And then we have in the middle of them, if you're, if you're kind of drawing these three boxes uh, and you put three and three, Old Testament, New Testament, foundations, history, instruction for both, uh, in the middle you have this 400-year intertestamental uh, period, right? Where, and what is that known as? Didn't you learn this? Um, I, silent, years. silent years. A lot of people call it the silent years, which I don't love that um, phrase because, yes, we don't have anything um, you know, collected during that time, but it doesn't mean that God wasn't working or that he wasn't moving in people's hearts. I mean, I, I, God was very active, um, but obviously there's, a, there's a, an Old Testament prophet that comes on the scene early in the foundations of the New Testament and begins to prepare the way for the Lord. And John the Baptist is known as the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's in the New Testament, but he's the last of the Old Testament prophets as he prepares the way of Jesus. And then enters, we enter into the gospel, richness of the gospel, the foundations of our faith in the New Testament. Then we have the history of how the church begins to leave, live that out in the first century. And then again, in the instructional books of the New Testament, the 22 books, are not necessarily advancing history per se. They're, they're amplifying what's happening here. Does that make sense? This was super helpful for, for me, you know, to be, be able to sit down with someone and say, let me just tell you in three parts what the Bible's all about. There's foundations, there's history of how God's people do with it, the good, the bad, the ugly, just like us, of how they live it out, and then there's instructions that are amplifying what's happening, that are, that are being prophetic and calling it out, 
and then also being poetic and helping us to understand the heart of the people as they journey through. Carol, yes. Great question. I don't. I don't know that. I. I mean, it's interesting because there's 22 and 22, and I, I don't know if this was, you know, in their in their mind and heart. You know, <laughs> obviously, yeah. What Carol's talking about is the councils that helped us to get the um, the full counsel of God, all 66 books of the Bible. If you believe in the inspiration of the scriptures, you also have to believe in the inspiration of the councils and how God was working in the centuries afterwards. To how do we get the 66 books of the Bible, which we can journey in that some other time. Um, but this is really, really helpful, I think, when you're sitting down with someone on the road to Emmaus on the way back, and they're saying, well, how do I understand the Bible? I mean, there's 66 books in the Bible, three different languages, written over 1,500 years, 40 different authors, how do I, you know, different cultural contexts. How do I put all this together? Well, you've got foundations, you've got history, you've got instruction. And we're getting ready to study uh, James, by the way, as a church. Now, so what's interesting about James is where does James fit in the New Testament? instruction. It's an instructional book. Martin Luther, the reformer, couldn't stand the book of James. He didn't think it should be in the Bible. The reason why is because he, he had a hard time reconciling the whole idea of, you know, faith without works is dead. And Martin Luther was all about, you know, grace, 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 because he was reforming the Catholic church and all the nonsense that had happened and, you know, uh, was incredibly strong on that. But I think this helps us because we understand that James isn't writing a foundational book about the gospels. Those have already been settled. He's writing to people that understand the Gospels and are trying to live that out. And he's being prophetic and speaking to them about, hey, if you have a faith in Jesus and nothing in your life changes at all, you may want to go back here and make sure that you have a faith that works. You have a faith that's being lived out. So we were talking about this morning as a small group. It wasn't that you know, James was saying, well, now we're going back and giving mixed messages. There's a little bit of works. There's a little bit of grace. No. It's all grace because he understands the, the, you know, the foundations. And by the way, you know, who was James's brother? Jesus. And we'll get into this when we talk about James. Like, it, you know, when you're, if a sibling wrote an epistle about you, you know, and your deity, like you may want to pay attention. My siblings would not write that about me, right? <laughs> so when your siblings start saying, which by the way, who, they were telling Jesus, come back home. Give this up. Stop this nonsense, Jesus. Um, you're causing a scene. You're causing our family to look bad. And at the end, and James, you know, James is leading the church and writing a book about his brother and how to live out faith in Jesus. So I hope this is helpful. This was super helpful for me. And the way I use it is if you put the, what I call the, you know, kind of the arc of the scriptures here, the foundations, the history, the instruction. Again, we got 5, 12, 17, 4, 1, no, 5, 12, 22, 4, 1, 22, and that's 66. So you understand all 66 books of the Bible. If you put that up top and then you put casket empty underneath it, you're cooking. I mean, you've got a really good understanding of how the Bible is laid out. And more importantly than just for you, you've got a great understanding of how you can sit with your kids, your grandkids, a neighbor, somebody who's trying to make sense of the Bible and understand it, and hopefully, you know, be on their way with that. All right, let me find my notes here. All right. Let's get into the Davidic covenant, okay? And if you have, okay, we did that. Here's my bottom line again um, for tonight, our teaching. God preserves his covenant, and we're going to talk about covenant, what that means, um, through the line of King David and draws a line from King Jesus to us. In other words, there's a congruent line all the way through the covenant, actually, to your heart tonight um, that God drew through King David and his successors. So I'd love to have some readers tonight um, to read 2 Samuel 7. Um, we're going to read through the whole passage. I believe it's 29 verses. Um, so let's just kind of mix it up. If you just you know, want to raise your hand, I'll bring you a microphone and just read until you get to a hard word or you don't want to read anymore and then just let somebody else pick it up, okay? Who wants to start us? 2 Samuel 7. All right. Thanks, Alyssa. When King David was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies, the king summoned Nathan the prophet. Look, David said, I am living in a beautiful cedar palace, but the ark of God is out there in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, go ahead and do whatever you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. 
But that same night, the Lord said to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord has declared. Are you the one to build a house for me to live in? I have never lived in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until this very day. I have always moved from one place to another with a tent and a tabernacle as my dwelling. Yet no matter where I have gone with the Israelites, I have never once complained to Israel's tribal leaders, the shepherds of my people Israel. I have never asked them, why haven't you built me a beautiful cedar house? All right, next reader. Thanks, Gary. I would throw this, but not a good idea. Now go and say to my servant David, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I took you from tending sheep in the pasture and selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all of your enemies before your eyes. Now I will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived on the earth, and I will provide a homeland for my people Israel, planting them in a secure place where they will never be disturbed. Evil nations won't oppress them as they've done in the past. Starting from the time I appointed judges to rule, in my, to rule my people Israel, and I will give you rest from your enemies. Awesome, thanks, Gary. Next reader. Let's let's go to the middle of the room. Someone someone in this region. Awesome, thanks, Sarah. Furthermore, the Lord declares that He will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with the rod, like any father would do. But my favor will not be taken from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. So Nathan went back to David and told him everything the Lord had said in this vision. Okay, verse 18. you want to start and then go back yeah then king david went in and sat before the lord god and said who am i O lord god and what a what is my house that you have brought me thus far and yet this was a small thing in your eyes O lord god you have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come and this is instruction for mankind O lord god and what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise, and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people, Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, Confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Awesome. 
Thank you, guys. Um, so what you just heard is known as the Davidic Covenant, and it's found in our passage, 2 Samuel 7. Although in the passage, it's not referred to as a covenant. Um, in Psalm 98, um, different places in the scriptures, Jeremiah 33, it's referred to as a covenant, as a, as a promise. And we've, we've talked about covenants before um, as we've walked through our, our story of the Old Testament. The word covenant is a very important word in the scriptures. And a good working definition of covenant is the word promise. And so there's, there's five specific covenants in the Old Testament. There's actually a sixth one uh, that we'll talk about. Um, but there's five specific ones, and we've covered a few of them. And here they are together. Um, you, you remember back in the creation narrative, we covered um, God's covenant with, with Noah. And I believe Gabe talked about that. One of the things that stuck out to me from that is how um, the rainbow actually has the bow of the arrow pointing to heaven. I had never heard that teaching before, um, but a Hebrew understanding that God was absorbing the punishment um, and the violence um, of judgment on himself and would not flood the earth again. We all remember the Abrahamic covenant um, in Genesis 15 and 17, um, which um, our small group right now is studying Galatians, and we were in Galatians 3 this morning. And Paul refers back to this covenant, and he says, if you're a child of Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, you're actually a child of Abraham. It's a continuation of this covenant um, that by faith you're accepted um, in relationship with God. We talked about together the covenant, the promise of Moses at, at Mount Sinai, the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, and, and God's um, you know, promise and covenant with his people there. This is one I don't think we talked about, but it's a priestly covenant that's given to Phineas. Um, that his house would, will forever be a house of priest. Um, we'll find that in Numbers 25. And then the covenant tonight, the Davidic covenant, and then all the successors that came after David, which we'll talk a little bit about tonight. Um, but it's important to understand um, each of these promises because they are specific in time, but they also carry through in the, in the new covenant and the fulfillment in Christ. And actually, I mentioned there's a, a sixth covenant. That, you know, most people say there's five in the Old Testament, but... I would include a sixth one from, if someone has their scriptures open to Jeremiah 31, um, verses 31 through 34, there's a, there's a final covenant that God references in the Hebrew Testament that's very relevant to our, our subject tonight. So maybe, I think the microphone's at table 12, if someone wants to pick it up and read um, Jeremiah uh, 31, 31 through 34, or Sarah, you have it, or you can, we can, you, can, you can share it, share the love, there you go. Job, Carl. Got volunteered. Voluntold. Yeah, 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 yeah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out from the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will mm. be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Okay, so significant passage, if you're taking notes. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. And Don, like, what are some of the words that stuck out to you in there? Uh, I volunteer you was part of it. <laughs> you got a new covenant. Okay, the word new, yep. a new covenant. Yep, and it's uh, different from the old. It says not like the old. It's not like the old covenants. And also, it, it kind of struck me that uh, he's talking about the covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. Hmm. So it's not going to be written on stone anymore. Now it's going to be written on your heart. And they aren't having to teach each other because they'll all know him. Yes. From the least to the greatest. Yes. And he'll forgive their iniquities. Yeah. Forgive their iniquities, remember their sin no more. So if you're writing down a sixth uh, covenant in the Old Testament that's referenced, that's coming, God says, I'm going to make a new covenant. And he does it through Jeremiah, who is a prophet. Um, who's 
in the instructional, remember our three coat hangers, he's amplifying the story and he's referencing to God's people, God's going to do something new. He's going to make a new covenant with you. Something else is coming. So he's referencing, obviously, the coming of Christ even in that time. So to go back to the Davidic covenant, um, God's promise to David, as we just heard in 2 Samuel 7, if you're taking notes, um, it's unconditional. Um, the scripture says it doesn't depend on his specific obedience, but it depends on God's unfailing love. And it's just like God's promise to Abraham in this way. It's based on Abraham's faith and belief and who God is and his unfailing love. In fact, there's um, six, there, there's our passage. There's six parts of the promises, the, the Davidic covenant, that I think are really significant that I want to make sure you understand and you see tonight. It's, a, it's an everlasting covenant. Okay, what does everlasting mean? Never ends. Not a trick question. Yep, it's, it goes on forever. Um, it's a part of an everlasting kingdom. That's an interesting word as we think about the Davidic kings. Uh, the promise to David is your kingdom is never going to end. Um, there's a son of God relationship that's mentioned um, that David's going to have and his successors will have. Um, the, his son, specifically David's son, and who is David's son? the first one in the line of succession. Solomon, the wisest man in the world, is going to be the builder of the temple. David's not allowed to build the temple. Solomon, his son, is going to build the temple. Um, we learned that the covenant can't be broken. And uh, a sixth one that I would add is that God's, uh, you know, it's about God's grace despite sin. So we know a part of David's journey that sin and brokenness is a part of his story. And as you learn this week with the 21 kings that follow, brokenness and sin is a part of their story. Um, and yet God's um, grace is going to keep his covenant throughout. So at the heart of the covenant to David and his successors is a promise to raise up kings who would sit on David's throne forever. And of course, it begins with Solomon and goes all throughout. And if you have your timeline, by the way, does anybody have their timeline? Or some, somebody at each table have their timeline? P pull out your timeline and open up to kings, the section of the scripture that we're in. And you're going to see, if you can see here on mine, at the bottom, um, the, in the blue, these are the, the um, successors of David, the, the Davidic kings, if you will, who are ruling over Judah. And something happens because of Solomon and Rehoboam, his son's disobedience. Something happens significant. We talked a little bit about it last week. Um, the kingdoms are divided, right? There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. So on the top of your timeline, um, you're going to see the kings of the north, and then on the bottom, you're going to see the kings of the southern kingdom the, of Judah, uh, the line and the lineage of David specifically. So if you look at um, Rehoboam, he's the first one uh, that's ruling over a divided king, and then you'll, you'll see a succession of different names that come you know, after that. And the complete and final fulfillment, of course, of this covenant, um, as we talked about in the bottom line, leads us all the way to King Jesus. So there's 21 kings from David to Jesus, and we'll talk in our final session tonight that there's actually 22 kings in the Davidic uh, covenant and kings because Jesus um, is the final king. Um, so we start with David. We go all the way through to Jesus. Um, Zedekiah is the last of the monarchy of David's line specifically until Jesus comes. But Isaiah tells us, so again, Isaiah is a prophet. He's in the instructional side of the house. He's amplifying the story. And Isaiah reminds us in Isaiah 11.1 1, that there's going to be a ruler who's going to sit on the throne of David for all of eternity. So Jeremiah, Isaiah, the prophets are beginning to talk about there's a new covenant coming. There's, a, there's going to be a new king. He's going to be an eternal king, an everlasting king. And, and now, of course, on this side of Jesus, we know who that is. But he's beginning to tell the community and instruct them someone else is coming who's going to sit on David's throne. There are four New Testament passages that, really three, that directly refer to Jesus being the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Um, and I think they're important for us to look at tonight. So I'm going to um, just list them out. And then if someone can, um, you know, be a reader for each one, that would be awesome. Um, so I'm going to list four. The one in Hebrews is kind of a passive reference. So I really just want to read three. The first is in Luke chapter 1, verses 32 through 33. The second is Acts chapter 2, verses 29 through 31. And the third is Acts chapter 13, verses 22 through 23. And again, these are the, the New Testament foundational passages 
that point to Jesus specifically being the heir of the throne of David in this covenant that we've learned about tonight in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So if someone would be willing to, I don't know where that, I've got the microphone. Someone be willing to read the passage from Luke chapter 1, uh, verses 32 through 33. That would be awesome. We'll just go Luke on this side and how about Acts uh, here and, or Acts, um, what is it, Acts 2 and then Acts 13 over here. How about that? So Luke 1 on this side of the room. Wade, awesome. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Thanks, Wade. All right, Acts 2. I've got it over here. I've got a microphone too, so. Oh, good. Jen, okay. <laughs> I was like, where? What's happening? Uh, okay, Acts 2.29. Dear brothers, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself, for he died and was buried, and his tomb is still here among us. But he was a prophet, and he knew God had promised with an oath that one of David's own descendants would sit on his throne. David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. He was saying that God would not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. So a really significant passage that Jim just read from Acts 2, 29 through 31, where we're learning that David, when he's talking about an everlasting kingdom and someone sitting on his throne, isn't referring to himself, that, that God's given him an insight that uh, a king is coming that will be eternal and everlasting, Jesus himself, the Messiah. Okay, uh, Acts 13. Somebody else want to read? Jeff. When he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Thanks, Jeff. That's awesome. Okay. And what sticks out to you? It was 13 through, or is uh, chapter 13, 22 through 23. And Jeff, what, just, I don't want to put you on the spot, but what sticks out to you about that passage? Well, it's pretty obvious that Most of the time. Yeah, still an incomplete person. Yes. Yes. Um, the other passage I have in here is Hebrews 1 5. That's worth writing down. It's kind of a sideways reference to this, but these significant New Testament passages that point us to the fact that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Um, and references all the way back to his line of succession all the way through. So I want to um, give us a little bit of time around tables now um, to go a little bit further in things that you learned this week in your study. And if you didn't have a lot of time in your study this week, other people are going to pick you up around your table. Um, but I've got some questions that your table leaders are going to walk you through, and then we'll come back together. And I want to do a deeper dive into these kings that followed after David, um, and then we'll finish up together. All right? All right, we're going we're gonna to come back and uh, jump a little bit further into our kings um, that succeeded David. And so um, does every, does every um, table have a timeline, most tables? Okay, if you could open your timeline for this portion, it would be super helpful um, just to see the succession um, you know, from, from David. And I mentioned there's, um, there's 21 kings uh, that lead to the 22nd, um, Jesus himself. And so we, we begin with Solomon, and we go all the way to Zedekiah, and we have some really interesting characters all throughout. So if you have your timeline, 
and you can share it at your table and you look at the, the uh, southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, and look at all of our names there. And again, you'll notice, beginning with David, then to Solomon, then the kingdom divides with Rehoboam. And, uh, you know, the, the Beatles sang a song, The Long and Winding Road. And this is a long and winding road. Um, it, it's really interesting to think about because you have, your, you have the period of, of the patriarchs, um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, um, slavery in Egypt for 400 plus years. Um, you come out of slavery, exile, uh, Moses and Joshua, leading the people of God through the wilderness into the promised land. And then we get to the promised land and we enter into the period of, does anyone remember, the judges, right? You know, taking possession of the promise. And we talked about when we uh, preached through that in the fall, that it's one thing for God to give you a gift. It's another thing for you to take possession of the gift. And that's what we see the people of God struggling with is they're not, they're not able to take possession of it. They're, they're in the promised land, um, but they haven't uh, allowed the promises to fully enter into their hearts. And so they do all kinds of stuff. God raises up, remember all these interesting characters called the judges, um, men and women, all kinds of different backgrounds and stories. And they're basically these little mini redeemers. And we talked about that in the history of Israel, that God raises up these, these imperfect redeemers. And at the end of Judges, remember, um, there's a haunting verse, Judges 21, 25. Yeah. In those days, there was no what? king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Okay. And that's where we leave it. And then God begins, remember we're, we're into to history now and God uh, raises up a king. The people want a king. They want a king like their neighbors. And God finds a man who looks the part and everybody thinks it's going to be great. His name was Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. And even in Judges, we see a conflict between the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And we see kind of Saul and David, even a foreshadowing of that and the conflict that they'll have with one another. And Saul doesn't obey God. And so God disposes of him and raises up a, a king in his own heart and goes to a little town called Bethlehem and finds Jesse. And he looks through all the brothers, right? All the big, strong brothers. And then there's one that's missing who's out in the field watching the sheep. And we learn there that God looks where when he's looking at leadership, first and foremost. God looks at the heart. And it's, by the way, in the calling of David, we see why God can continue to have his hand on David, even through his sin and brokenness. Because he had a posture, he had a heart that was for God. And so even though he was a broken man and was capable, obviously, of great acts of wickedness, God continued to have his hand on him because he had a posture of a heart that followed him. Because God looks where? The inside. God could see David's heart. So even though we look at David now, we go, well, you're, like, you're, you're epically failing in a lot of ways. Um, God's looking at his heart and going, yeah, but his heart is still towards me. He still has a humble heart. You know, God described David as a, as a leader with an upright heart and a skilled hand. Um, you know, two, two great attributes as we think about um, Christian leadership, the posture of our hearts and developing skills, you know, for the glory of, of, of God. So what's interesting, though, you think about the period of the judges, then we get into the period of the kings, which we're looking at. And that lasts almost 500 years, just over 500 years. And then the last king, you know, um, is, uh, we'll talk about his death, which is very vivid in 2 Kings. Uh, Zedekiah and his sons are, 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 or his, his sons are murdered in front of his eyes is the last thing he saw. And then his eyes are gouged out by a mad man named, remember, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who takes him off to Babylon. And we think it's over. Um, and then God, you know, there's only one group of people in all the Old Testament that ever comes back from exile. Northern kingdom never came back from the Assyrians. There's only one group of people that ever come back from exile in the Old Testament, and that's the people of God. And God brings them back, and he uses a man named Ezra and Nehemiah and begins to restore, and we'll, we'll, we'll get more, more into that. But I want you to look at your timeline here, if you get, your table has it open, and I want you just to call out some of the descriptors that are used on the timeline on this long and winding road. We started with a road tonight. And look at the road from David to Jesus. Is it, a, um, is it 485 that's smooth and clear sailing? Oh, I guess 45 is not always either, right? All right? The toll lane will be, the toll lane. Um, what are some of the words that stick out to you from the page about this succession of kings? The, the throne of David, you know, David's uh, kings that are following after him. What, is, uh, what does the scriptures tell us about uh, most of these men? And Gabe reminded us last week, by the way, most of them were, were not great. Go ahead and just call out. 
They're pa pagan, pagan worshipers, evil, witchcraft, idols, cult sacrifices. Initially destroys the idols, but then thinks again. No, I do like these idols. Mediums, mediums, child sacrifices, abominations, alliances uh, with Ahab, bribes. Let's find Hezekiah. Go look at Hezekiah. There's a couple, right? There's a few. But it's, the point is, right, that we got to look hard to find upright men who were sitting on David's throne. And the point is that God uses broken people to carry on his everlasting covenant. Remember, go back to, let's see if I can do it here. Go back to our covenants, right? Look at this last one. God's grace despite sin. And we see that epically on display with the succession of characters that just continue to mess things up. And what's so interesting, right, is that at the end of Judges, God's people are saying, you know, um, we don't have a king, you know, and everybody does what's right in their own eye. And now they have a king and everybody's still doing right in their own eye, including the kings. And so the problem is that all the way back to what happened in the period of the Judges, all the way back to what happened in the beginning is that we're rejecting our Sabbath king. And, and what happens in the fall in Genesis 3 is the rejection of the kingdom. And so even though God is faithful to, to raise up these little mini redeemers, judges, he's, he's raising up kings themselves who will sit on an actual throne and rule and reign politically as figureheads for God's people, it's never enough. It's always wanting. It's broken because the heart of it is the people's rebellion against their own king. And that's obviously the one who's sitting at the end of David's lineage, uh, the one who's coming to sit on the throne of David forever. So in many ways, the 450 years of David's kings, they, they remind us of the 400 plus years of the period of the judges. And we have these four 500 year chunks. And then after the kingdom of David ends in 586, which if you're looking at your timeline, what happens in 586? Jerusalem burns. Nebuchadnezzar comes the first time in 605. This is where the story of Daniel appears. He takes the best, and remember this, the best and the brightest um, from Israel. This is what they would do. They would go in, and initially they would take all the young leaders from a nation. You want to destroy a nation? Uh, take their young leaders. So they would take their young, their best and their brightest, and they would indoctrinate them into the Babylonian way. And then years later, he comes, so what would that be, 14, 15, uh, 19 years, is that right? 19 years later-ish, he comes back to Jerusalem, and this time he burns it, destroys the temple, everything, and takes the last king. Look at your timeline there, a man named Zedekiah. And some of you know the story. Um, it's found in, I think it's 2 Kings. Is that right? I think it's 2 Kings. Um, I'm going to check that's going to drive me crazy. Hold, please. Uh, 2 Kings 25, 2 Kings 25, 1 through 7. If you want to go and read something that's so vivid, this is the very end of David's earthly succession of kings is a man named Zedekiah. And he's one of the last people that Nebuchadnezzar takes captive. Um, he takes him outside of Jerusalem and it's such a gruesome scene. And I, I'm not going to say much more about it other than what I've already said, which is he basically says, the last thing that you're going to see is your successors, your sons dying. That's the last thing you're going to see. And he slaughters his boys in front of him. And then he gouges his eyes out. And then he binds him and takes him to Babylon. I mean, and this is the end of, supposed the, the end of uh, the monarchy of David's line of succession. Like, how, how could it go on? All the, all the successors are dead and um, you know, they've been slaughtered and Nebuchadnezzar, this evil king, has come and, and you know, ruled and reigned over Jerusalem and burned the city of David um, and is now taking the last in the line and slaughtering them and taking them off. But there's a 22nd king. And the prophets begin to talk about, even in the midst of this destruction and the weeping over Jerusalem and the ending of the Davidic supposed covenant and line of succession, uh, the prophets begin to tell of a righteous king that God's going to send, um, that God's going to raise up to rule on the throne of David. And I'm sure for the people hearing this, they were thinking, don't you know the story of what happened to the line of David? 
there is no more line of David. And we're living in a pagan culture and a pagan world. We'll never go back to the city of David. It's burned to the ground. But interestingly, Jeremiah, who is known as, some of you know this, uh, as the weeping prophet, because he's prophesying during this history. Remember our coat hangers, um, foundations, history, instruction. And so in the history of God's people going into exile, which we're going to cover next, in, in the next session we'll go into exile and then eventual return to the temple, the prophets are continuing to amplify the story. That's what they do. And they're beginning to tell God's people the story's not over. Um, all seems lost, but all isn't lost. And here's a, a, a really vivid passage from Jeremiah's writings, Jeremiah 23, 5. Just, just go ahead and read it for yourself. So if you're hearing this as God's people, you're thinking uh, Zedekiah and his sons, like they're, everybody's dead. Um, there, there is no more line. And Jeremiah begins to say, yeah, but God's, God's going to provide. God's going to do something, and he's going to continue the lineage of, of David. And we're going to see his promises fulfilled. And what's interesting, guys, is um, you know, the New Testament actually opens. So, again, we, we 586, the monarchy of officially ends. The people go into exile for a generation. They begin to return um, at the beginning of the fifth century. This is where we get the story. One of the last books in the, in the Hebrew Testament, Nehemiah, um, and, and telling the story of God's people restoring um, the temple and rebuilding the walls of the city. And then we have this intertestamental period of 400 plus years of quote unquote silence where God is active, but not actively speaking. And then the New Testament burst into the, on the scenes, Matthew 1, 1. Somebody has it, just read it out. Very first verse of the New Testament, Matthew 1, 1. Hang with me for just a couple more minutes, okay? I know the day is getting long. Just a couple more minutes. Matthew 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Man, what a voice, Jeff. It's awesome. Matthew 1, 1. Matthew 1, 1. Got it, brother. Are you sure? Read it one more time. Maybe I missed a word you said there. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Oh, there it is. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, I missed the last part there you said. Yeah. So the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of There it is. So everything we've been talking about tonight, the Davidic covenant, the aspects of the covenant, why it was so important, the last covenant of the Old Testament until the new covenant, comes through Jesus, and the very first scripture in the Bible, or the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, I don't know if you've ever noticed that, describes Jesus as the son of Abraham, you know, all the way back to the first covenant, right? Uh, really the first covenant, there's a Noahic covenant, but really the first covenant in terms of building a people and, and by faith entering into relationship with God, and it's a continuation all the way to the last covenant of the Hebrew Testament, the Davidic covenant, that, that Jesus has come to fulfill that covenant and to sit on the throne of David. And that gets even more interesting because the last chapter of the Bible is Revelation 22. And if somebody would open there, so we started the first verse of the New Testament. So the last chapter of the Bible, almost the last verse, Revelation 22, verse 16, references uh, Jesus as the son of David, the successor to his throne, the fulfillment of God's promises and covenant. So would love for someone, I think I have it up here too, but I'd love for someone uh, just to read it out. You can read it from the screen. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony to the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David. How about that? So the New Testament, introducing the new covenant, Jesus himself is beginning by referencing Jesus as the son of Abraham, the son of David. In other words, continuing the covenants that God's given to Abraham and David. And then the last chapter of the New Testament, last chapter of the entire Bible, um, Jesus is um, you know, referencing himself as the source of David and the heir of his throne. Now think about, I highlighted it. Um, he's saying that he was the source of David. It was his idea. And he's also the heir. He was before, what? He's before and he's after, right? He's the alpha. He's the omega. He's the beginning. He's the end. Root. The root of Jesse. 
all the way back to Jeremiah's prophecy that there is one who's coming that's going to continue the line, even though it seems like it's been broken. There's one that's going to continue the line of David, and more importantly than David's line, continue the covenant that God made with his people. I'm the source, and I'm the heir to the throne. And then he uses this phrase, which is actually a Hebrew um, phrase for Messiah, I'm the bright and morning star. Um, that in darkness, in the darkness of exile, and the darkness of, let's go even further back, in the darkness of slavery, and the darkness of people enslaving themselves by, you know, um, worshiping pagan kings and idols around them, uh, um, by the darkness of uh, different kings in their hearts who just messed it up, knuckleheads over and over and over again that couldn't get it right, the darkness of exile, the darkness of silence, Jesus says a bright and, and uh, the bright morning star has, has shone in the darkness. Um, the Messiah has come um, to fulfill the promises of David and to sit on his throne forever. And that leads us back to the bottom line again, right? That God preserves his covenant through the line of King David. And he draws a line, as Jesus references, from King Jesus, the fulfillment, the source and the fulfillment of uh, the lineage and the promises of David. He draws a line, not just from David to Jesus, but from Jesus's heart now to your heart that those same promises that are carried on were carried through for your heart to know God, to come into relationship with him. Um, This has been a joy um, journey in this part of the scriptures with you. Um, I hope it's been helpful to understand a little bit more of the Davidic covenant and all these these names. They're not just names on a page. They're real people that were carriers of God's covenant all the way up to Jesus. And again, back to our road to Emmaus, maybe this is one of the things that Jesus explained to his friends. Uh, that day, that I'm actually the one that came to fulfill all the things that you've heard about in um, Abraham and David and all the promises um, that they're fulfilled in me. And I hope that um, our hearts will continue as a group as we come to the scriptures in this way and just study it more intensely together, that our hearts will burn within us and um, that we'll make our trip back to people in our lives and tell them the story of Jesus how God made himself known to us uh, and explained the scriptures to us. And we'll be disciples who will go make disciples, you know, that we'll be equipped to go and, and, and be disciple makers to other people, all right? I want to give you just a couple minutes at your table before we close. Um, just to, what I wrote down here as a prompt is maybe you would just write one or two sentences of something that God spoke to you about during your study this week or something tonight in the teaching uh, that you just want to remember, Um, you'll probably forget a lot of the things that were said tonight, but what are the things that you want to really grab and write down in your heart um, to remember that God spoke to you about, specifically about David and his line of kings that came after him? So maybe just write down a sentence or two. I just want to give you a couple minutes, and then uh, we'll close together in prayer. All right, guys. Um, Just before we pray, a couple things, um, just opportunities and things that are happening in our church. First of all, I want to thank our academy team, uh, Tammy and Sarah and Michaela, who have worked really, really hard um, to, to make this possible. And um, yeah, just want to want to bless you guys and thank you for your hard work. And um, you know, our dream is to really build this out into different levels and uh, all kinds of different courses and classes and create tracks um, for equipping disciple makers and. Uh, that, that every person at New City will be touched by Academy, but beyond that, that you know, thousands and thousands of people in our city and maybe even around the world, if God blesses us uh, in that way, would be equipped to be disciple makers um, in the years to come. So pray for them as they continue to develop more courses and, and think through how we can best equip people 